Hello, I'm John Eldridge, and welcome to the Ransomed Heart audio podcast. For more information on Ransomed Heart Ministries, our resources, and events, please visit us online at www.ransomedheart.com. The real base of this book and these conversations began years ago, right when I was out of college and beginning to date this girl. And she was the real one that began to raise these aches and raise these questions. Oh, and I remember. All of a sudden, I needed to know more of where I was going and who I was going to be because that it mattered. There was somebody else in the picture that that mattered for. And as we began to have those conversations, then walking through identity, we were able to have conversations about women that came to a completely different level. It wasn't just, is she cute? Does she love Jesus? It was whole new categories of yeah. how is she living? Is she healthy? And real ways to gauge that. How to know. How to know. Right. Exactly. So friends, welcome back. John and Sam Eldridge reading for you this week from chapter five in our new book, Killing Lions. And we are actually returning now, having addressed identity, we're returning back to the subject of love and sex and women with a wonderful wrinkle in the story of Sam's relationship with Susie. Chapter 5. Back to Love, Sex, and Women. With or without you. With or without you. I can't live with or without you. You too. You love bow hunting and fly fishing. I love sailing. I loved it before I had ever sailed. I romanticize it to an unholy extent, imagining heading south into the warm waters of the South Pacific with nothing but a box of cigars, a bottle of rum, and something to write my poetic gems on. The dream of watery escapism only increased with my schooling in the art of sailing. Somehow the salt in my hair and the sun on my skin, the rush of fighting the waves and harnessing the wind all combined to confirm everything I imagined sailing to be. As Steinbeck said in the log from the Sea of Cortez, this is not mysticism, but identification. Man, building this greatest and most personal of all tools, has in turn received a boat-shaped mind, and the boat, a man-shaped soul. As graduation approached, I hatched a plan with Chris, a fellow English major and friend, to take his family sailboat in Washington and sail south like Steinbeck. They had a 26-footer, and we flaunted our dreams to everyone who asked what we were doing after graduation. Thinking back on it, we had multiple occasions of unsolicited advice wherein people told us to bring a weapon to fend off pirates and the homeless of the sea. Add to this the fact that neither Chris nor I had any idea how to sail, and there was a distinct possibility we would need to be rescued by SEAL Team 6. Put together, we couldn't have told you the difference between a jib and a boom, let alone put out to sea. I learned to sail because of Susie. I never would have learned if Susie had not called the sailing company and forced me to sign up. She has that characteristic push that I have come to deeply appreciate. We started dating two months before I graduated, and I'd like to point out that no, I was not freaking out about graduating without finding my wife. Those early months were a whirlwind of excitement and joy, and to stick with the sailing theme, some seriously rough water. Frankly, it was nothing short of a storm. This was largely because I was sorting out who I was and where I wanted to be headed with my life, which a lot of our relationship hinged on. Susie wanted to know who I was going to be about as much as I wanted to know it, and unfortunately, it took her dumping my sorry behind before I began to step up and play the man. 
We had been dating for several months, and frankly, it wasn't a pretty sight when she read me the letter. Yeah, an actual letter. It was brutally honest and named my aimlessness, my lack of initiation, how I had hurt her, and how she deserved better. She was right, of course, and I love the effect she has had on me since. In addition to sailing, we've been running together, adventuring, climbing mountains, reading books, and learning to love each other well. I know I've also had a dramatic effect on her and her pursuit of knowing and caring for her own heart, which was a new category. I'd like to think I've helped her to slow down on occasion and embrace rest and affection in ways other than accomplishment. I wasn't so sure about Susie when you first met. Mom and I had only experienced her in person on two separate occasions. Plus, you kept vacillating about the relationship, so we didn't know what to think. But when she broke up with you for the reasons she did, Susie won my everlasting respect. Not that I wanted the pain it brought you, but I loved her courage and how she called you out. I loved the effect it had on you. Most young women just won't risk that with the man they're dating for fear they'll lose the relationship. Like a girl who pretends she doesn't hear bad noises coming from under the hood of her car, they push aside their valid concerns, quieting their conscience with thoughts like, he'll change once we get engaged, or once we get married. That rarely comes true, about as often as your car magically fixes itself. So, a quick word of advice. Marry the man or woman for who they are now, not for who you hope they will become. Are you better because you are together, or are you both stuck in the stagnant water of complacency? That's the first good test for every relationship, especially dating relationships. Is your effect on each other life and a growing maturity and wholeness? Does she move you toward the man you want to be, and is your effect to bring out her best and brightest self? I love the line toward the end of the movie, As Good As It Gets, where Jack Nicholson confesses to Helen Hunt, you make me want to be a better man. I can't say Stacy and I were good for each other when we first met. We ran with a rowdy crowd in high school, and when we went our separate ways in college, I think it was for the best. Certainly it was for her. I had a lot of growing up to do. But around the age of 20, we came back together over our newly discovered faith in Jesus. Now, what typically happens is that one partner in a dating relationship has the more serious faith, and the skeptic eventually pulls the believer down, thus the failure of missionary dating. It just doesn't work. But Stacy and I propelled each other forward in our faith, in our dreams, and that was the foundation for the beautiful romance that ensued. You and Susie have discovered that you really are better together than you are apart. That is, your effect on each other is growth and goodness and becoming your better selves. Dating is for the purpose of getting to know the person well enough to know who they truly are and to see what your effect is upon each other. We all put our best foot forward when we meet a potential guy or girl. You don't know if they're crazy or booby-trapped until you get to see behind the scenes. You want to see them in social settings, with their friends, do they have friends, and with their family. It's probably even more important that your friends get to see her for who she is and how you are together. Love isn't simply blind. Love is delusional. We lose half our brain, go completely comatose toward glaring issues, and that's where our friends can step in. I've known too many folks who make excuses for their partner and then regret it five years into the marriage. I have wondered if courtship is a relic of the past, 
And if it is helpful to date casually in order to meet people and develop relational skills, or should we follow the trend of foregoing dating altogether? There seems to be no limit to the screwed up ways people date. Many of my friends, me included, were at one point or another chasing girl after girl only to move on, sometimes hours after catching their crush of the week. In high school, I dated a girl because it would improve my social standing. I knew a guy in college who proposed to a young woman because it made sense financially. Real romantic. What about the couple that spends all their time on the couch in his room and only leaves because they don't have a nasal feeding tube? Our generation has grown up with leaps in technology, and as such, texting and online communication are a critical piece of many relationships. I love being able to communicate with Susie throughout the day, but the negative side would be when the couple realizes they don't engage in the real world anymore. A friend of mine experienced this in a long-distance relationship. They would talk online or on the phone regularly until it hit him that they weren't actually living life together. None of his friends knew her, and it wasn't long before it fell apart. Tied in closely with the false transparency that technology brings has been a hyper-awareness of our status in relation to friends and even society. Facebook's status updates are most often about relationships. So now that I am in this relationship myself, I can't help but think, whoa. Let me clarify a little. There's the whoa of being tied to someone else, and then there's the whoa of her beauty. But right now, I'm talking about the whoa of what on earth is going on. I have in my phone a message I saved when Susie and I were dating, though it could have happened at any point in time. The conversation is all Susie and goes like this. Honey, I am not a feeler. I mean, I am a feeler, but my emotional response is a little weird because with all these emotions swirling around, it gets so confusing. So then I just cry. And it's only later that I realize, oh, that was joy. Or, oh, I was mad. This is just something you need to know about me. Oh, good, I thought to myself. You can imagine how humorous I found this message and also how little light it actually shed in what is happening in the internal world of women. Even she doesn't know sometimes. Truly, how different she feels from me. I can be a very social person, but at my core, I draw my energy from being alone, which I suppose makes me an introvert. Anytime we would go downtown or head to a friend's place, my internal clock would start counting down the minute I walked in the door. Susie, however, would make a new best friend every time and want to stay until Christ came back. She isn't just different from me. She is quite probably my opposite. In some ways, it feels like the more I give, the more she needs. I am completely convinced at this point that we use a different set of connotations for the language we speak. It's amazing how much we can misunderstand each other. Really, I think we all want to know what love looks like going forward. Even when I am strong, living out of a good place, this thing has its good days and its bad, and they all feel completely arbitrary. I love what I've gotten myself into, but I could use some help over here understanding the heart of a woman. I'd love to share what 30 years of marriage and 20 counseling young people has taught me, but let me begin with a question. What is your greatest fear as a man? That's easy. I fear feeling like a fool. I fear it and hate it above everything else. Hate might not even be a strong enough word. Loathe may be better. I hate walking into the bank and having the teller raise an eyebrow in pity when he asks my monthly income. I hate going in to buy a suit and being chided and coddled by the staff who assume I know nothing. So what if I don't know my measurements? I have cringed days after being caught in a bluff by someone who knows what they are talking about and then calling me out in front of everyone. 
There are times when I feel Dean Koontz hit it on the head. Humanity is a parade of fools, and I'm at the front of it, twirling a baton. There is something about heights that makes my stomach drop. Something about walking face first into a spider web that gives me a crawling sensation all over. Something about narrowly missing a collision on my bike that sends ice up my spine. But more than anything else, I hate feeling like a fool around a woman. I think most guys do. The sensation afterward is something that came to a personal black hole opening up inside my chest, and I wish it would hurry up and swallow me whole. There was the time I took a girl to the movies, and when I asked for two tickets, the agent informed me that it wasn't even showing that day. I didn't know what to do and just stood there frozen. Or when I took flowers to a girl at school and kept them in my backpack, and when I pulled them out, they had completely wilted. There is nothing worse than bumbling my way through a conversation where I am anything but suave. I once tried showing off on a diving board by doing a double front flip, but ended up hitting the water face first and giving myself a bloody nose. Almost every guy I know tells stories of spectacular failed attempts at a date, or an introduction, or a kiss. And while the stories are told in a circle of laughter, every man's eyes go a little dim as he relives the memory. Yep. Every guy listening to this just said, yep. But the women didn't, at least not in the same way. Women don't shudder at stopping to ask directions, don't feel like complete idiots when they can't get their car started, don't feel like a total failure as a human being simply because they need someone else to come alongside and lend a hand. Guys hate being in that position because it screams, I need you to bail me out because I can't handle my life. Women understand that we're here to help one another. They have a far more relationally connected way of approaching the world. Men don't play with each other's hair. We don't call each other to talk through the details of another guy's new relationship and how their date went last night. Men aren't buying People magazine. When men text each other, one short message followed by an equally brief reply is enough. No emoticons, exclamation points, or I love you. Our first question when meeting another guy is typically not, how are you? But, hey, how's it going? Or, what's going on? Questions focused on activity rather than relational interdependence. Men come at the world from a conquest standpoint, but women approach life from a relational viewpoint. That's why they don't feel diminished by needing someone to lend a hand. They have a far more communal way of living. Now, if the secret fear of men is failure, the secret fear of women is abandonment. This is so important to know about a woman's heart. In the core of her being is this voice that whispers to her, I am not enough. I am too much. If he really knew me, he wouldn't stick around. Though we all put our best foot forward in dating, we are wearing different shoes, so to speak. Guys do it so that they don't look like a fool, and women do it so that they won't be rejected. Start with our core fears, and you can learn a lot about the internal world of men and women. Some people fear that admitting the deep and remarkable differences between men and women will hurl us back into the 50s, fling open doors to discrimination, take away the vote. I believe it opens the door for us to better love one another. The same folks who cringe at the mention of gender distinctions will tell you the next moment how arrogant it is for you to assume that your friend from Palestine looks at the world the way you do, or that the rest of the world speaks English as their first language, or that when they do use English, they understand the words to mean precisely what you mean them 
to be. When poetry is translated from one language to another, it always loses something essential. If you want to experience what the poet meant, learn the language he or she was writing in. This is humility, not discrimination. If we approach this from the viewpoint of wanting to understand one another and therefore better love one another, I think we can avoid stepping on landmines. Paul prayed that our love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Philippians 1:9. Stacy is not a man. I can't relate to her as a man. We don't look at money or family visits or sex anywhere near the same way. When I say, "Can you wear a different dress?" I need to remember she probably hears, "He thinks I'm ugly." When all I was saying is that I like the blue one better. We learn about our differences in order to be better lovers. A woman wants to be chosen. She wants to be wanted. She fears rejection and above all, she fears abandonment. When I make plans without consulting Stacy, it sends a message that goes something like, "He's completely happy living separate lives. It doesn't really matter if I'm a part of this or not." Now, I may have been simply trying to slay a lion, but she feels it as a separation, as a form of rejection. Conquest versus connection. Surely you've begun to experience this. I feel like I blunder into success as much as I blunder into downfalls. That Susie really values connection. That I think the world of her and she receives love in a completely different way than me, through both words written and spoken. And that she has a really hard time believing what I think of her. Exactly. As you get to know a woman, you want to know her story, the things that have shaped her, because you want to know who she really is. Where did she experience shame and for what? Where did she experience being prized and for what? Because everything you say and do is being filtered through her way of seeing the world. You can bet that girl who was passed around sexually by multiple boys growing up doesn't really like sex because it got intertwined with the message of no one really cares for you as a woman, as a human being. They just want to use you. All you're good for is being used. And then Later in marriage, her husband wonders why she doesn't desire sex the way he does, whereas the competent, independent achiever might, in fact, simply be fortressing herself against rejection by hating anything in herself that feels vulnerable or feminine. What looks like strength might simply be a moat and a drawbridge. Remember, whoever she is, she has a false self too, constructed to avoid rejection and win approval. The girl you described as going full-blown crazy on your friend, she was flipping from one personality to another based on the cry, "Just tell me who you want me to be and I'll be it." The purpose of dating is to learn which is the false self and which is the true self, so that you know if you really are better together. As you move into a committed relationship and on into marriage, you want to fight for her true self to come alive while being careful not to step into the booby traps of the false self. So you must know the things that have shaped her. What was she rewarded for? If anything, where did she experience fear, or wounding, or full-blown assault? And may I say that as you get to know her story, you want to pay very close attention to her relationship with her father and how he handled her heart. Their relationship will prove to be something of a Rosetta Stone for just about everything else: her personality, her fears. 
whether or not she believes you when you pay her a compliment, what trips her into rage or silence. Does she have dreams for her life, separate from a need to perform? Does she take care of herself? Does she even like herself as a woman? What is her capacity to receive love and rest in the security of the relationship? Back in your freshman year, when you decided to form an identity apart from a girl, I remember you admitting you were historically attracted to girls who were frankly a little crazy. Three years later, you found Susie. How did you know she was different, a really healthy young woman? I knew Susie was a whirlwind when I met her. She was fast-paced and driven and spontaneous. But I knew that she wasn't just another dramatic girl because of several reasons, beginning with her self-awareness. She knew where she wanted to be going and what she wanted out of a relationship. And when she dropped all of her expectations on me after one day of dating, it knocked me off my saddle, for lack of a better expression. But that was just it. Susie wanted good things. She wanted a healthy relationship, a Christ-centered relationship. And I could tell it wasn't an act because of the world she had created for herself. All you need to do is look at her friends, the people she surrounds herself with, how she interacts with strangers, where she is comfortable and where she isn't. It is the true litmus test to see if she is healthy. We all create worlds for ourselves that show who we are at a deeper level, much more than our personalities. Even after one date, I could tell she was different, that she was solid. Now, there were other girls who seemed a little like Susie from first glance. They were dynamic and exciting and beautiful. But their self-created world, their friends, and their effect on others was more like a whirlpool. They would pull people in and control them through their actions, making everything revolve around them. And when you got to the center, it was suffocating. Those girls are more like drowning women than anything resembling a healthy, independent woman. And I think it's those healthy indicators that help young men know when and when not to come through. If a girl is basically secure inside, if her fundamental reality is, I'm loved, I'm okay, then you're free to move toward her when she needs rescue. But if she's not healthy, if she's looking to you to make her feel loved and okay as a human being, then you dare not play God for her. Though her present crisis might shout, come through for me, she needs God, not you. This will really help guys with the wanting to be the hero thing, because that is a great part of us. But when do we let it move us and when do we hold back? Does she have a healthy world, friendships, a life in God? Your friend who broke up with the girl who was always creating crises did the loving thing because what she needed was not a man, but a sure foundation in God. All this gets really messy when things get physical. I know this topic has seen too much attention from the pulpit these days, but seriously, there's a false intimacy in over-sexualized couples. For all the complicated reasons that people choose to step into those waters, often some combination of affection, security, and thrill, when couples get too physical, they really do lose something. I've seen some use it as a stopgap for relational issues that never get solved. In other cases, it has eaten away at the trust in the relationship. The question may or may not get asked, but it goes something like, is this really as intimate as we've been led to believe? I remember a metaphor you told me once, that being intimate with someone is like gluing two pieces of paper together. When you pull them apart, you get little tears and holes that rip and stick to the other. They are never the same and carry a little of the other with them. And I'm not just talking intercourse. I know too many guys who operate by the letter of the law and do everything up to having sex. 
in reality, that has serious effects too. It's nothing but cheap semantics. Couples that do this often don't grow like they should. They cut out other people from their lives, and subsequently their world becomes smaller and smaller, and they don't address issues in their own relationship and become hollow as a result. This applies to couples that just make out too, though how they stay there is beyond me. Sexuality has become such a game of walking the razor's edge between being PC and holding on to values that feel as arbitrary as our grandparents' curfew. I want to say that sexual intimacy matters. I've seen it destroy relationships all the time. But I also want to say that it doesn't matter just because someone said so, even if that someone was your parents' pastor. It matters because of the heart. Frankly, if all you do is sit on the couch, that should probably come to an end as well. Exploring life together is everything. One of Susie's favorite lines of poetry is from Mary Oliver's The Summer Day. Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? A relationship should be both wild and precious. Seek adventure, explore, rest in beauty. Not doing so is ignoring that which makes you both come alive. That's a beautiful way of putting it. A good man wants to take care of the heart of his woman. This is why it's so important for young men to understand what they are communicating when they kiss a girl, how it is affecting her heart. My goodness, holding hands is an enormously romantic experience for a woman. A guy might just think it's nice. A girl may well be swept up into a scene from a movie. If you don't want to mess with her heart, you'll be careful what you're communicating through physical connection. In the movie Jerry Maguire, Tom Cruise's character has a beautiful young woman as his professional assistant who secretly adores him. After their first date, they climb between the sheets together and he says, this is going to change everything. And she replies, promise? Taking care of her heart and taking care of yours will also give guys a whole new framework for thinking about masturbation and porn. It's not just, hey, stop it. They are issues of the heart. I don't want to give my heart there because I want my heart free and whole and because I want to be totally present as a friend and a lover. When I turn to masturbation, I'm turning away from relationship. When I lust over a woman's body, I'm in that moment turning away from my woman. I want the real deal, the wild and precious gift of being in love and offering a strong love, a man's love to a woman. That really shows the difference between love and infatuation. When you are thinking more for her benefit and loving out of a desire to see her thrive, when it is selfless and the relationship can stand without the physical, then I think you are onto something more. All this feels really huge, but then I have to ask, should you have killed a lion before you commit? Many traditional cultures like the Maasai require a young man to prove himself before he can marry your own land. He needs to kill a lion, so to speak. It seems wise. What do you think? I'm a big believer in having a vision for where your life is headed before you get engaged. You don't have to land the big job or own a house first. But when you ask a girl to marry you, what are you inviting her into? A proposal is not just, hey, we like hanging out together. Let's do it 24-7. Or more often than not, for committed Christians, we want to have sex. Let's get married. A proposal is an invitation into a shared life. So, fellas, what exactly is that life going to be about? That girl has a right to know where you're headed, cowboy, before she just up and rides off with you. 
Mom and I shared in the adventure of the theater company we were starting. We knew this was the city we wanted to be living in. We loved the church we were committed to, and we had a healthy community around us. I don't think a young man should marry hoping that once he does, everything else will just sort of fall into place. When she broke up with you, Susie insisted that you address your aimlessness. Back to what we were saying earlier. One firm foundation you do want to have going into a committed relationship is a good sense of your identity. Your fiancé or wife cannot resolve that for you, nor can you for her. This is something you want for both of you. You want your fiancé to have the opportunity to settle some of the deeper issues of her heart and her identity before you marry, and you want some sense of who you are as a man. Now, there is grace here. You don't have to have everything figured out. God loves beginnings. Adam and Eve needed each other to live the life he had for them. So much of the joy of young lovers is discovering together all that God has for you. Don't picture yourselves as architects coming in with a complete blueprint, but rather as adventurers trying to decipher a treasure map together. I just love this chapter. I love your story. I love the way Susie came into your life. I love what's become now in a beautiful, really beautiful marriage a year and a half later now. And just so excited to share some of these treasures with our friends. Yeah, this book really feels too limiting to say that it's just for young men. Maybe a better way that we've been describing it is it's for men who feel young at heart. And another thing we've been calling this book, it's the manifesto for those very men. It's the manifesto for the generation that needs to rise up and wants to have these questions answered but isn't having these conversations. And I think that it's going to be really powerful. Yeah. Surely, friends, you know you're already thinking of people that you want to turn on to this. The podcast, to the Killing Lions films that are available at killinglions.com and to tell them about Killing Lions, a guide through the trials that young men face. <laughs>